There are three readings today. The first reading is from Exodus, chapter 19, verse 1 to 25. In the third month, after the Israelites left Egypt, on the very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although though the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Make them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, Be careful that you do not go up the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. He shall surely be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on him, whether man or animal. He shall not be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they go up the mountain. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them and they washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, prepare yourselves for the third day, abstain from sexual relations. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up, and the Lord said to him, Go down and warn the people so they do not force their way through to see the Lord, and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves, or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up Mount Sinai because you yourself warned us. Put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. The Lord replied, Go down and bring Aaron up with you. But the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord, or he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. This is God's word. The second reading is just over the page. It's Exodus chapter 20, verses 18 to 21. 
When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. This is God's word. Okay, the third reading is from the book of Hebrews. Okay, Hebrews 12. We're reading verses 18 to 29. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them, because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, But now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is God's word. Well, that's all a bit ridiculous, isn't it? Uh, Everything's just uh, slightly odd there. I mean, uh, you've got God dwelling in darkness rather than light. People saying, I don't want to hear God speak when there's an option of God speaking to me directly. I'd rather hear somebody else speak for God. You've got God saying, I don't want you coming anywhere near me. And you've got people motivated to fight sin we're told not because you love God but because you're afraid of him just about everything in that passage is wrong isn't it I mean what's going on with Exodus truth is when we find uh, the Bible confusing or saying things that we really weren't expecting that's a good thing it's a very good thing because it means that the Holy Spirit is going to teach us something that we don't already know It means that God is going to correct a wrong understanding we have about him. So it's a wonderful thing when his word tells us things that we just weren't expecting. And in particular, tonight we're going to learn in this passage about fear, phobias. Uh, We're all gripped by any number of strange phobias. Uh, The NHS website tells us that the most common one, I think, in this country is arachnophobia, which um, is brought on... That's basically the reason you won't find me living in Australia. (laughs) Uh, Arachnophobia, about 10% of us here um, 
In fact, I think if you've got half a brain, if a spider that size comes into the room, uh, more than 10% of us. Anyway, uh, another uh, of the most common phobias is coulrophobia, which is the fear of clowns, of all things. Now, I have to say, there is something slightly sinister about that. (laughs) I don't think it's so strange to be a little bit freaked out by um, Chuckles the Clown here. Uh, Another phobia is ombrophobia. You may not have heard of that one, ombrophobia, which is the fear of the rain. And if that's you, you are living in the wrong country. (laughs) Uh, There's papaphobia, I think is the strangest of all of the ones I came across, which is the fear of the Pope. (laughs) It's a genuine medical condition, the fear of the Pope. Uh, But the, uh, the oddest one, for the NHS to officially list in its... Uh, genuine phobias that afflict people's lives. And this is a real one for generation-wise, nomophobia, which is the fear of being without mobile phone coverage. Seriously, the NHS lists this as a genuine phobia. Uh, and actually, the internet is a is awash with hypnotherapists and advice sites to tell you how to live your life free of all the various phobias that cause you anxiety and distress. But what I want to do tonight is not to free you from a phobia, but to instill in you a very uncommon phobia in our culture, which is theophobia, the fear of God. Why would I do that? I mean, doesn't God want us to love him? Why would you come to church to be taught to fear God? Uh, God wants us to love him, doesn't he? Yes, absolutely. He wants you to love him. But, uh, if anybody's um, been watching Broadchurch, the second series, you'll be, you'll have seen any number of times in that series, the oath being taken in the court of law. It's one of the few accurate bits about the court scenes and the whole thing, but don't get me started about that. But the oath, I'm sure many of us will be familiar with it. When you stand in a court of law in this country, you swear by Almighty God that the evidence you shall give will be the truth, the whole truth, And nothing but the truth. And I suspect that for many of us Christians, we know the truth about God, but we don't know the whole truth about God. And the reason, very often, is that we just don't spend an awful lot of time reading the Old Testament. It is not that the Old Testament has a different God from the New Testament. Fierce God in the Old Testament, cuddly, kind God in the New Testament. It's nothing like that at all. But there are certain things that are emphasized about God in the Old Testament. There are certain things that are explicit about God in the Old Testament that then are assumed in the New Testament. The writers to the New Testament assume that we already know what the Old Testament has taught us. And one of the big things in particular is that in the Old Testament, we encounter God in his untamable might, in his vast, unshakable, unimaginable greatness. There is just an undeniable enormity and purity and power about God in the way that he reveals himself in the Old Testament. And the truth is, if we don't get that locked into our heads and our hearts, our lives as Christians will be blighted. See, all of us uh, struggle to fight sin. And the truth is that one of the reasons that we we struggle to resist sin, is that when temptation starts to feel really hot and we can feel the battle, the urges, well, God is so nice. 
and so tame, so kind. It just doesn't feel like a big deal to displease or offend that lovely little God. And so we don't mind sinning against him. Uh, One of the reasons that we struggle to trust God is that the truth is that the issues in our lives and the issues in the world out there are big and they are scary and they are very, very real. And we're not convinced that our domestic, tame, pocket-sized little God is up to the job of handling them. See, our lives as Christians, if we follow the Lord Jesus, are really shrunk and diminished and lacking if we don't have a full view of who God is, if we don't grasp the whole truth about how mighty and wonderful he is. And that is something that this passage in Exodus will really do for us. What we need is a healthy biblical fear of God. And that is what I pray the Holy Spirit's going to do for us tonight. Let's pray now as we, as we turn to the Bible. Our Father God, we, uh, we confess that, um, we do probably have a small view of you. And so we pray, Father, as we open your word now, that you would drive that out of our hearts and that you would enlarge our imaginations and our understanding, that we would see you as you truly are. Amen. Now, you can uh, tell what's important in the Bible um, in part from, well, just how much time and space is given to it. So there are four whole books given to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's pretty important. This section of Exodus, where they are now at Mount Sinai, starting in Exodus 19, it lasts for a whole year, and it takes up 59 chapters of the Bible. It matters. It's a really important section. See, this is where, for the Israelites, their culture is going to be set This is where their values are going to be established. This is where their traditions and rituals are going to be started. This is where they're really going to start to know who God is and what it's like to live as his people, with him as their God. Look with me. um, So page 76 in your Bibles, Exodus chapter 19 that we just had read. Exodus 19, verses 1 to 2. In the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on the very day they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert, in front of the mountain. This is one of the hinge points in the book of Exodus. So the first third, the first 18 chapters have all been about how God delivers his people, how God delivers his people. Now the central section will be about how or what God demands of his people, before in the final section we look at how God dwells with his people. How God delivers his people, what he demands of them, and how he dwells with them. In one sense, that's one way to sort of split up the book of Exodus. Uh, You'll notice if you're sharp-eyed that we missed out a small section of chapter 20, namely the Ten Commandments. Don't worry, Uh, it's not that we've uh, decided we can do without them. Uh, We'll be looking at them a little bit later on. But you'll have seen um, the way that uh, chapter 20 verse 18 matches chapter 19 verse 16. uh, There is a symmetry in these passages. They're meant to be viewed together. And so tonight we're not so much going to look at what commandments does God give his people so much as what kind of God gives commandments to his people? What kind of God is it who says the Ten Commandments? And that's what we will see here. 
Uh, firstly, we'll see uh, that this is a God who calls his people to come to him in the first section. It's a God who calls his people to come to him. Verse 3, then Moses went up to God and the Lord called him to, called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the house of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you fully obey me and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. God is calling a people to himself. That is why he rescued them from Egypt. So that they would be his. It's extraordinarily beautiful language as God says, you, I own the whole world, all of the peoples, but I choose you. Of all the peoples here, I choose you to be my treasured possession. That is what God says to Israel. When you were in danger and being worked to death by Pharaoh, I snatched you out of his clutches like a great eagle and I gathered you to myself and bore you safely away. And God's destination for them, do you see, is not some geographical place so much as a relationship. I brought you to myself. It's a wonderful, wonderful passage. It's a huge privilege that God is bestowing upon them. And it's not, though, as if God doesn't care for the rest of the nations. We've seen this again and again in Exodus. Do you see what they're to be, verse 6? A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In other words, Israel will be for the nations what the priests within Israel are to Israel. Well, what were they? As we'll see uh, later on in, in Exodus, the priests were set apart to be holy for God. So Israel is to be set apart holy for God. In other words, Israel is not to behave like the other nations. Israel is to behave in the way that God determines. And then the second thing the priests do is they mediate God's presence and blessing. So Israel is to, it's a strange phrase, I'll explain it, mediate God's presence and blessing. In other words, the, the nations will look in and will see what it is like to live with God as your God. And so the blessings that God pours on Israel of being his people, the Israelites will are meant to let flow over into the nations. They are meant to help the nations see and know what it means to be God so that the nations will themselves come to trust this God, just as Jethro did last week, as we saw. Verses 7 to 9. As you read these verses, it is hard to share their confidence when you know what's happened in the previous chapters. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. Mm -hmm. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. We'll see in future weeks why it is that God uses a mediator, a, a go-between, someone to stand between God and the people. Uh, but we're not going to focus on that tonight. These are extraordinary words at the start here as God calls his people to himself. They're precious words, treasured words. And the best thing is they're not irrelevant words. 
It's not like we're uh, stood in the crowd at somebody else's wedding, seeing uh, somebody else having wonderful words of promise, of covenant made to them, of relationship made to them. In the New Testament, in 1 Peter 2, the Apostle Peter says these words are for us who trust in Jesus. They're for the church. He says in 1 Peter 2.9, the church, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness and into the wonderful light. Wouldn't it be wonderful if the passage stopped there? A wonderful passage. In one sense, we could just stop there and spend our time thinking about what it means for God to, to say to us, you are my treasured possession. You are my chosen people. You have this role, this this wonderful task and calling in life of taking my blessing to the nations. It's an extraordinary thing that God does for his people here. But of course, the passage doesn't stop there. And we'll see the themes of the first bit of the passage picked up lots uh, in later chapters of Exodus. So we must plow on to verse 10, where God warns this very people to stay away. Verse 10. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Make them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day. Because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all people. Well, fair enough. God's coming. Wear your Sunday best. That makes sense. Verse 12, put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not go up the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Oh, he shall surely be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on him. With a man or animal, he shall not be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast, may they go up to the mountain. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them and washed their, and they washed their clothes. Then he said to them, prepare yourselves for the third day. Abstain from sexual relations. What on earth happened to the approachable accessible, relational God of the first nine verses. Where did he go? What happened? Nothing. Nothing happened to him. But we learn in verses 3 to 6, where we learn in verses 3 to 6, that God rescues his people because he is compassionate and loves all those he's made in his image. We learn in these verses that he is so holy that even his treasured possession cannot just walk up to him. God is so holy that if even his treasured chosen people walk onto the mountain where figuratively he comes down, they have to be put to death. He is so holy that they can't even be touched when they're killed. They have to be killed at a distance. There's no contradiction. We're just learning more of the truth about God. And suddenly we've moved from a a beautiful wedding service to an Ebola hospital. Flashing lights, quarantine signs, double locked doors, airlocks, seals, danger, armed guards. It's just a total change of scene. 
I remember um, going through an airport in 1991, going to, through Heathrow in 1991, when Saddam Hussein, um, remember him, had just uh, invaded, actually most of you don't, do you? Um, had just invaded Kuwait. And uh, you expected security to be tight. There were two tanks outside Heathrow. You know, I mean, by all means, take extra precautions as a war. But tanks, what serious threat do they think is going <laughs> to lead to needing tanks outside of Heathrow? It just seemed ridiculously over the top. And you read this and you just think, gosh, especially coming from our casual culture, God's just being a bit extra here. I mean, seriously, just calm down, chill out. Isn't the most important thing that we're authentic? Isn't the most important thing that we have a a genuine desire to engage with you, God? Isn't that what matters more than do this, do that, and don't come here and wash your clothes and all this? I mean, it's just, it's not very, you know, friendly. Doesn't play very well in our culture, does it? It does seem totally over the top, if we're honest. None of us would write this if, if God says, write a chapter about what happens when my people come to me. None of us would write this. It seems totally over the top until, <laughs> until you read what comes next in verses 16 to 25. See, what we find there is that God is no ordinary God. And it is no easy thing for ordinary sinful people to come into his presence. Look with me at these awesome verses. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like a smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke and the voice of the Lord answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up and the Lord said to him, go down and warn the people so they do not force their way through to see the Lord and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come to Mount Sinai because you yourself warned us, put limits around the mountain, set it apart as holy. The Lord replied, go down. And bring Aaron up with you. But the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord or he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Can you imagine the reality of these verses? Ever since you left Egypt, Moses has been telling you about his encounter with God on this mountain, the mountain you're going to. How how there was a, a bush that burned on the mountain. And as Moses came, he had to take off his sandals and the bush spoke to him. And all through the desert, all through the Red Sea, all through the journey, this is where you've been going, to this mountain where God spoke from this bush to Moses. Not like the fake gods of the Egyptians who just stood dumb as statues in a temple, but a God who, who actually speaks. It's the most exciting moment of the life of Israel. So you, you know, wash the family clothes, a couple of breath mints. No one wants coffee breath on this morning. It's, you know, you've got to take this seriously. And you, uh, get up very early. 
You know, you don't want to be at the back. There's going to be a burning bush and God speaking. It would be a terrible thing if you can't see the burning bush on the mountain or, or you can't hear God speak from the bush up there. So you get up early and you walk through the camp doing that sort of British thing of walking as fast as you can without running because I don't want anybody else to realize that I really want to be in the front row, but I don't want to look like I'm trying. And, and you get to the edge of the camp and there's Moses. And then you wish you were right at the back. It starts with the thumb, thunder, great, sonorous, rumbling peals of earth-shaking thunder and lightning flashing low in the sky, right above your heads, across the whole sky, lit up with angry, bright, sharp flashes. And a trumpet that just gets louder and louder and louder until it fills your ears. And Moses calls you forward and there's no danger of anybody running ahead and there's no danger of anybody moving beyond the stakes at the bottom of the mountain. And then the Lord descends and it's like the mountains turned into a volcano. From 400 yards you can feel the heat oppressively, almost burning your skin as you melt back. And dark Ominous, billowing clouds covering the mountain, covering the sky with darkness, making the lightning seem almost more terrifying than ever before. And the whole mountain trembles. A mountain, a solid mountain trembles as the creator's feet land on his own earth. It is the most frightening thought. And God says... Don't let them come near, verse 21, or I will break out against them. And Moses says, I assure you, we've obeyed your commands. There's, there's a limit and I've told them. And God says again, Moses and Aaron come up, but don't let the people force their way through or I will break out against them. The God who tenderly rescues, the God who gathers his people to him and bears them on his eagle wings, now says, stay away, back off, or you die. It's extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary. What on earth has happened to God? Nothing. In verses 1 to 9, we learn God loves people. He's made in his own image because he's compassionate and full of love. In verses 16 to 25, we learn God will judge sinful humans because he is holy and righteous, and good. God is a blazing fire. Gold is not damaged by fire. Gold has nothing to fear from fire. Impurities in gold do. That's why you stick gold in fire, to burn off the impurities. If you and I were pure, we would have nothing to fear from God. We could enjoy being in the blazing heat of his fire and just enjoy the light and the warmth of God. The problem is, I am impure. My heart is full of impure thoughts that give rise to the ugly actions and the ugly words that come out of my mouth. And so I do need to be afraid. The problem's not with God. God is good and perfect and pure like fire. The problem is with me that my heart is not gold. It is impure. And so I would be burned up. That's what's happening here. God has not got ugly and angry. God is pure and good. So the good God 
warns his people to stay away from him. The God who rescued his people to himself warns his people, stay away. Stay away. And we see that God's people respond as they should do. They tremble with fear. Uh, Look at, um, skip over to chapter 20 and verse 18. The end of the Ten Commandments, page 78. Matching chapter 19, verse 16. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear and they stayed at a distance. The mountain trembled and now the people trembled. And (laughs) it's not surprising, is it? They were terrified. There's no other word for it. We can't get away with reverence here. This is terror. They're afraid. They tremble. This is naked, knee-shaking fear that's going on. And it leads to one of the most extraordinary verses in the whole of Exodus, verse 19. They said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Imagine that. Imagine having the offer of God speak to you audibly with his own voice and you say, no, no, please, whatever happens, don't speak. I would much rather you talk to somebody else and have them speak to me. Extraordinary thought. Uh, when I was 18, um, I did a, a short-term missions trip down to Argentina. It was great fun. And at the end of the, um, the, the summer trip, we went to visit the Iguazu Falls on the, the border of Argentina and Paraguay and Brazil. And stunningly beautiful and immensely powerful. Uh, so to get an idea of, um, if, if stats do it for you, 12 and a half cubic kilometers of water, that's 12 and a half million liters of water pour over Iguazu in the wet season every second. If stats don't work for you, uh, the summer before we went out there, they built this um, this walkway out to the, the devil's throat, the central bit of the falls. And the walkway was on these concrete feet. They're about the size of the lounge up there, uh, but just twice the height. So big concrete feet. Uh, when we got there the next summer, you couldn't walk out in the walkway because it just got washed over the falls by the spring rains. Concrete feet and all. It's a seriously mighty impressive place. And um, uh, on the, in the afternoon, we took this boat ride up from the from the bottom uh, under the falls, up through the rapids and to the falls. And it was great fun. Um, and we were all young and full of big chat. Uh, and the the guy running the little boat was as young and stupid as we were. So he went, as we asked, right up into the devil's throat, which is the, the sort of U-shaped bit right at the heart of the falls. And it was great and all exciting until suddenly we found ourselves right in under it. You couldn't speak or hear anything because it was just the thunderous noise of the the water in the air and hammering down on the rocks below was just utterly deafening. You could hear it for days afterwards in your head. And you were looking up at the equivalent of a 25-story high building of just water, 12 and a half million litres, hammering down second after second after second. And this uh, rigid inflatable boat was being tossed around like a little toy in a child's bath. And I have to say that all the big talk just evaporated, and it was terrifying. It was just genuinely overwhelming. You just couldn't take in the sheer volume of what was coming at you. And I was just so grateful when we turned and pulled back and got downriver. It was just utterly overwhelming. Seen from a few miles away, set in the middle of the jungle, it's the most stunningly beautiful sight. 
from right at the bottom of the devil's throat, it was just way overwhelming. It was terrifying. And the God of the Bible, the God of the Bible is a God we long to be near. All of us are hardwired with this desperate, deep urge to hear from, to know, to be close to this God. And yet when you read in the Bible and people have a vision, an experience of of being close to him, of seeing him, they find it terrifying and overwhelming. Ezekiel, the first time God speaks to Ezekiel, he cannot even speak for seven days. He's struck dumb. He's so overwhelmed. When Isaiah has his vision in Isaiah 6, he just thinks, I'm dead. I am dead. And when the Israelites have God speak to them, they beg God to stop speaking because they think they'll die. His voice is so overwhelming. The God of the Bible is awesome and he's mighty. And the truth is that when his people encounter him, they tremble with fear. Thank goodness things are different for us because we live in the New Testament and everything's different in the New Testament. Not so fast. 1,500 years later, after this, Mark's gospel records an incident where a group of men are sitting in a boat on a flat lake and they are genuinely trembling in terror. A few seconds before, they thought they were going to drown in a terrible storm that had blown up on the Sea of Galilee. Huge towering waves crashing over the boat, furious wind. And then the guy who was asleep at one end of the boat stood up and just said calmly, be still, mill pond calm, everything dead calm. And now, sat in a calm, quiet boat in the middle of a silent lake, they are terrified. Why? Because the men in that boat knew their Bibles and they knew there is only one being who has that sort of power over the forces of nature. The God of fire and Mount Sinai is the only being and they start to realize that the man they've been hanging around with, this man Jesus, is no ordinary man. He's no holy man. He's no man in touch with God. He is that God in human flesh and he's sitting with them in a boat and they are right there for in one sense, to tremble. But again, thankfully, we cannot and must not stop there. Uh, there are a couple of words of comfort that God speaks to the Israelites at the end of chapter 20 that then get richer as we go through scripture and are really powerful words for us tonight. So chapter 20 and verse 20. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. Four little words at the heart of verse 20. Do not be afraid. 200 times in the Bible, God repeats this command. Do not be afraid. 200 times he says to us, it's one of the most frequent things God says in the whole of scripture. Do not be afraid. But how can you not be afraid when God is like that? It's no good telling you not to be afraid when the mountain is trembling and fire is coming out like a volcano how can you not be afraid in one sense it's never fully explained in the old testament but when you flick over to the the second reading page 1210 1210 the second reading from hebrews 
chapter 12. Do you see it speaks of two mountains? Verse 18, Mount Sinai, a mountain that can be touched, burning with fire, darkness, gloom, and storm, a trumpet blast, and a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged no further word be spoken. And it's contrasted with another mountain, verse 22, but you have come, that is Christians, when you trust in Jesus, you've come to Mount Sinai, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Why is it that we can approach this mountain, the mountain where God truly dwells, Mount Zion, the heavenly mountain, whereas the Israelites couldn't approach Mount Sinai, the mountain where God figuratively came to stand? Why? Because between those two mountains, there actually stands another mountain, a third mountain. And that mountain is called Golgotha. It's a mountain just outside Jerusalem. And God descended on that mountain... And there was great darkness. And God called up a representative of the people to that mountain. Only he wasn't called up to receive the law, the covenant. Instead, this man, Jesus, came up to die for his people's failure to keep the law, the covenant. And so Jesus went up that mountain. And on that mountain, on Mount Golgotha, on the first Easter, Jesus hung on a cross and died. He absorbed the fire of God's perfect judgment, of his furious judgment, his good judgment against sin. And he died so that we would be welcome up God's mountain, so that we would be welcome to come to God and not have to fear and stay at a distance like the Israelites. He died so that you would not have to fear the fearsome Lord. That is why Jesus died, so that you don't have to fear the fearsome Lord. So how should we live and relate to God, given that Jesus has died to take our sin? The point of this passage is not to have us groveling and in abject terror. The point of this is you will not find yourself high-fiving Jesus on the way into heaven. He is not that sort of mate, pal, bro. He is God. And in our casual generation, we need to recover a sense of reverence and awe of God. We need to repent of our casual attitudes towards him. And we need to rejoice that we get to to worship a God who is not small and matey and accessible, but who is awesome and mighty and beyond our comprehension. C.S. Lewis uh, illustrated it brilliantly in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. I'm sure you've heard it many times. The children have just discovered that the great king is a lion, Aslan. And Susan said, oh, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I should feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. (laughs) That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there is anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just plain silly. Then he isn't safe, asked Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Didn't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he is good. 
And we need to realize that this is the God we offend when we play with sin. Oh, I'm forgiven. It's no big deal. And oh, seriously, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, it's not easy. And oh, God's not going to get that worried about it. He's got bigger things on his mind. It is no small thing to offend this God. This is the God who is overseeing the affairs of the world. And as terrifying as it is to think about Syria, Islamic State, Boko Haram, as terrifying as it is to think about some of the things going on in our own families, our own lives, isn't it wonderful to know that the God who is in control is properly big? He can handle it. We do not need to fear. This God has got the world in his hands. The God of the Bible, the God of the Bible is the kind of God who says, do not fear because he wants you to come to him as children to a father. That's why his son died. The God of the Bible is the kind of God who says, do not fear. But the God of the Bible is also the kind of God who needs to say, do not fear. I guess many of us will have questions about uh, how you fit some of what we see in Exodus 19 with other bits of the Bible. Um, I'll be hanging around afterwards, so there's plenty of opportunity to, to ask questions and follow things up. Uh, but I don't want to do that now. I just want to spend a minute in quiet before uh, the band come up, just to repent of our pocket-sized ideas of God, our casual attitude to him, to repent and also to rejoice that God is so great, so awesome and so mighty. So let's spend a minute or two in prayer.